Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. This is episode number 18, and my name is Faison Arsha. We are continuing on with EMS Week in a bold fashion. Today, I have two very close friends of mine on the podcast, Andrew Kristopik, as well as Ed Kolkloff, who are both educators based out of Lairdal in Wappingers Falls, New York, where I also operate pre-hospitally. Today, they share their insights in regards to the Resuscitation Workshop, an adjunct to the Resuscitation Academy, where they really drill in, challenge dogma, and dive into the metrics and performance psychology of developing high-performance teams. Now, this is a very interesting course. There are not very many like it. And I think one of the most fascinating components of the resuscitation workshop is that they, without fail, have a very heterogeneous group of providers that attend this, whether they're pre-hospital, in-hospital, nurses, techs, EMTs, paramedics, critical care transfer providers, physicians. And one of the things they really astutely do in the very beginning of the course, in a non-judgmental, non-antagonistic way, they monitor each provider's uh, CPR performance, and they share that with them. And it's not designed to be pessimistic or antagonistic, but rather it is purely constructive. And the point that they're trying to get across is having an ACLS card is just the first step into caring for providers in cardiac arrest. And that should mark the beginning of the path to mastery where we strive to not only challenge ourselves to learn on a day-to-day basis, but also drill and train with the teams that we will inevitably be responding to cardiac arrest with so that we can optimize the entire chain of survival. So hang on, this is going to be a great one by my two good friends, Andrew and Ed. Good evening, gentlemen. I am so excited to finally have this conversation with you guys. It's been a long time coming. And we are going to be talking all about the resuscitation workshop, designing high-performance teams, the psychology that goes into building a team, critical factors related to both leadership and followership, and sort of questioning the dogma of the way we're taught and not taking anything for granted so that we can optimize our patient outcomes. And with us, we have none other than Ed Kolkloff, as well as Andrew, and I've been working on this pronunciation, Kristovic. 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 Fantastic. I opted for Smith, but that didn't work out. <laughs> I don't know how much choice you had in the matter. Excellent. Good evening. Fantastic. Very nice to be here. And what we would love is if you guys could just tell the EMS Nation audience a little bit about yourselves, your background, how you two came up with the idea for the resuscitation workshop, and then we'll dig in. You guys have some amazing stories to share that really help uh, bring some of these issues to focus. Excellent. So I'll start. Uh, my name's Ed, and I uh, 
am currently a senior program marketing manager for Laridol Medical, a company that I'm proud to work for. Our mission is helping save lives. And um, I moved to the private sector industry after about a 20-year EMS career. So I was privileged to work uh, the streets as a paramedic and then later on a supervisor in an education uh, simulation center. So I have been with Laridol for eight years now, and uh, I'm happy to say that I'm still very much involved in EMS. And you hail originally from Ontario, Canada? Yes. So for those that notice the accent. Yeah, uh, come on. That's what the people want to know. So our offices are in the exotic Wapringer Falls, New York area. And I'm originally from uh, Toronto area, the greater Toronto area. Fantastic. Um, So good evening. Um, My roots are are a little more humble than Ed's. I started in EMS um, when I was 16 years old in the state of Connecticut as an explorer. I was part of an Explorer um, program and uh, was in a very rural area. I had 90 people in my graduating class, and we didn't have EMS um, that could staff, or EMTs and paramedics that could staff the ambulance during the day. So we actually had to staff it with high school students. We kept the ambulance at the high school, and if there was a call, um, we would go out and get the ambulance started up and and wait for uh, the paramedic to show. or EMT if there was one available. Did you even have your license by that point in time? I, I had my driver's license, okay. and, and in Connecticut, you could become an EMT at, at uh, 16 back then. Um, That's fascinating. So this is outside of Hartford, Connecticut. This is a, this is in Granby. Granby. Granby, Connecticut. Okay. Yep. Um, north of north of Hartford. Um, so while Ed worked for a very large professional EMS um, that had all the uh, I think it's safe to say all the bells and whistles. Um, we were joking today. My world was was if we had to use a traction splint, it was built out of a couple two by fours and use a triangular bandage. The original wilderness yeah. medicine. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've been with uh, Lairdall for uh, six years now, and uh, originally was responsible for the EMS market and then the resuscitation portfolio. Now I am a senior program marketing manager for um, hospitals and the VA, um, but still have a uh, passion, just as Ed does, for resuscitation. And uh, it's really been a great journey, especially my work with, with Ed. I've been um, really honored to be a part of that. So that's a little bit of my background. Fantastic. Also served in the Army. Um, and that'll come into to play in, in how we designed this program and why we focused on certain elements of team training. Amazing. In this, and I'm also a Team Steps Master Trainer. Now, where did you guys get the idea to develop this program? What are the roots? How did you guys come up with the concept? And really, what were the steps that brought it to fruition? Um, we've done a lot of work and, and uh, have form and formally support uh, the Resuscitation Academy, the the premier academy uh, out in Seattle, Washington, um, and they—they uh, they are the trendsetter and, and the bar setter for uh, resuscitation academies. And you're starting to see a lot of those pop up around the country. We saw the need for um, a blend of what the resuscitation academy does, but also a focus on building high-performance teams and 
um, taking elements of, I mentioned team steps. Um, we saw a need to take elements of team steps, elements of simulation, um, and uh, put together a program that was really focused more on, on building high-performance teams with resuscitation being the common language, if you will. Uh, this program could be applied to anything. The, the process that we've used could really be applied to, I think, any any clinical topic that involves a heavy team component. Do you agree? Absolutely. So we recognize there was a need out there. There were some very high achievers in the industry that were achieving their ultimate goal of ensuring that teamwork and team concepts were were intentionally communicated and deliberately practiced. But we found that on average, their, the average um, environment didn't necessarily embrace that and that you know, we recognize that teamwork and team collaboration isn't as intuitive and does not come as naturally as one would expect it. We, we expect, especially in EMS, that we remain isolated for long periods of our day, but then when we get together with colleagues and other allied services, we're supposed to just to work seamlessly in a team. And we all know that doesn't necessarily happen. It doesn't happen by accident. So we wanted to find a common language, something that we could communicate the message to and really demonstrate versus just talk about it. And you know, we'll talk about some of the benchmarks that we use during the resuscitation program or later, but really to illustrate that because we know a lot of people in EMS specifically need to have it illustrated. They need to see it in practice. They need to see it in action. And we also recognize that there's a lot of talk about good leadership. There's not often a lot of talk about good followership, right? So we all talk about the qualities of good leaders and what we expect out of them, but we don't often uh, talk about good followership or show good examples of that. We recognize the need. It was really about a gap analysis, recognizing, and one of the opportunities that we do have is we have exposures to a lot of different EMS agencies, uh, both in Canada, the United States, and, and Latin America as well. So we're privileged in seeing some of and having exposure to some of the best systems uh, in, in the country. That's a very interesting comment. So exposure to the best system, certainly so. You can see when folks are drilling, training, uh, have simulation exercises, and are gelling in the way that they work, how that can come together and coalesce to really improve patient outcomes. And on the flip side, you also have exposure to systems that do not work as efficiently. And, of course, one of the missions of the EMS Nation podcast is to help work on those disparities to break down the root causes and to elevate the level of care for providers all across this country and, in fact, world. So we're super excited to dig in to some of these concepts. Um, I know there are a lot of stories, uh, real-life stories, that we're going to get into, and I'm excited about that as well. Now, just to talk about the start of the day. Now, you have a group of providers. How do you target who you want to appeal to? How do we get these folks into the room together? Because they're not just EMTs, paramedics, supervisors, RNs, uh, emergency department technicians. It's a varied group that you have together. How do you bring them together, and what's the sort of common shtick? Well, I, I think that's a, that's a really good question, and we had to target uh, to make sure we had the right people in the room for success, not only in this day, but in the future outcomes as they go back to their respective agencies or their 
respective hospitals. And so, you know, the first qualifier is, is that this is team training. So it's not one single organization that constantly works together. It's a mixture of disciplines, first of all. So whether it be hospital and EMS providers, whether it be firefighters, police agencies, physicians, what have you, all different levels of providers. And that's why you'll hear us refer to this, and we talk about CPR as a common language, because the first obstacle was to have a common language or a benchmark discipline that everybody shared, right? Mm -hmm. So we could have easily used ACLS and then excluded some people. We wanted to make sure that we were talking at a level and a language that everybody could understand as well as embrace and had an opportunity to change their behavior once they left. So once we've identified those people, it's about then the subcomponents of who those people represent. So we try to have people that are frontline healthcare providers, but it's also imperative that we have some decision makers because we want people to have an aha moment, let's say, during the event and to take that feeling and enthusiasm back to their organization and be able to affect change. So we know a lot of times the tail wags the dog. There's a lot of paramedics that are really driving the level of clinical practice in their smaller agencies and services and and take a lot of good things that they learn back and share them and drive change. But we also recognize that there has to be those stakeholders, the decision makers involved in learning this and by actually experiencing how easy it is to develop good teams and to recognize the need for that. So it's a mixture of disciplines and a mixture of authority levels, let's say, within each class to, to make it really successful. Um, to, to now circle back to, to, um, to your question about, okay, so now how do we engage all these people? Yeah. Um, and I'm, we can also cover this in just a moment, but I'll give you a sort of a step-by-step for the, for the, the course. Um, there are essentially three, you could divide the course, the day, into three parts, and then there are some subparts. But the first part is really um, understanding uh, and, frankly, coming to grips with your own um, skill set. Mm-hmm. Then moving to how do I apply that skill set in the context of a team? Then how does that team uh Roll with the, the, the punches, if, if you will, with the realities of practicing in a real world environment. Because we all know, especially in EMS, no situation is the same, right? Every, every single cardiac arrest is, is going to have a different environment, potentially different people on the team, um, potentially even different equipment or equipment that doesn't work right, whatever. So we, we go through this building process. Coming to grips with your skill set. Here's an interesting challenge when it comes to CPR. And it's very interesting because because um, people think, oh, CPR, you know, this isn't really that challenging. Hands on the chest and palm. Right. Um, well, first of all, not everybody is equipped to do the same job on the team. Not everybody should be doing compressions, for example. I come in to work with a, a sprained wrist, for example. What am I doing um, getting involved in compression? Mm-hmm. Or if I'm that 90-pound individual that just can't get the requisite two inches, I'm not going to fly. Mm-hmm. I'm potentially having an asthma issue that day. Should I be attempting to go even past a minute? Should I be even doing that job? 
So what we do at the very beginning of the class is we give people a test. They have to do a minute of compressions. Now they're doing this on a um, on a Laerdal Recessi MQCPR mannequin, so that's going to measure everything objectively and scientifically according to the five. But we're only focusing on four metrics in this case because we're just doing compressions. But they have to do a minute. They have to guess their score. Score zero to one hundred. We give them a random number. So we maintain absolute, just like HIPAA was absolute anonymity throughout the uh, throughout the class. But we give them a, a random number, and we ask them to guess their score, and then we record what the real score is. They don't learn what the real score is until a little later in the game. Um, we will typically get people, um, and this is natural. Hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. Hey, I started at 16 years old as an EMT. I can do this in my sleep, right? Mm -hmm. um, we typically get people that say, I could do this. You know, I got a 100. I got a 90. I got a 95. This was a joke. Later on, they learn their real scores. And this is no exaggeration. We have people that assume they are thought confident that they got a 95. They got a 10. Mm -hmm. Or somebody that got a, uh, thought they scored 100 and they scored only 5. Often hand placement is a big issue. Leaning on the chest is a big issue. Sometimes compression depth, I'd say leaning on the chest and hand placement are huge issues, enormous issues. Um, rate is. But it also illustrates, too, that, you know, because those are the people that think they're doing well and aren't meeting that standard. But there's also the other population that thinks they're not doing so well that may be doing better than they are. Well said. Right? Mm -hmm. So the interesting point of that is, is when we talk about assessment and feedback and we talk about truly understanding performance, it really is irrelevant if you're doing better than you think you are, you're not doing as well as you think you are. The reality of it is, is that without exception, especially in our test group that was about 300 people when we initially tested this program, out of that initial test group of 300, we had one person that was close within a 5% range. The rest were totally in a greater range of 20 to 50% off of where they thought they were. Wow, that's incredible. So it really speaks to understanding how well you are performing because we don't have that feedback traditionally. We don't have that opportunity to really evaluate how we did. Now, we only share these scores at a very appropriate and poignant moment. Of course. Where, where um, those scores, when we share them with people, are really going to have an impact. Um, this, is a, this is a course that takes people through a self-discovery process. Um, and I can tell you two things. People don't want to leave at the end of the day. They want to keep going, typically, if they've got the energy. Um, and it's a painful process mm. in getting there. Um, they will continually learn throughout the day. Based on what we've seen, we certainly advocate this as, as, um, as an approach, not necessarily the only approach, but as an approach. It's an approach that helps you, uh, that takes you through a full immersion into finding out what you don't know. But it's, it's necessary. The, the, uh, going back to what we were talking about with understanding your scores and understanding what you're good at. Would you mind just uh, spelling sure. out the metrics, Andrew, that are uh, compiled or composite within the score? 
Sure. So um, we focus on, first and foremost, uh, chest compression fraction, um, then um, depth, rate, recoil. Um, if we introduce uh, airway into it, then, of course, um, your, your ventilation. Those are all the metrics that um, are measured in, on our uh, QCPR mannequins, and those are the ones that um, add up to whether you're delivering quality CPR. Now, what's nice about having the ability for people to see and measure those five metrics is they'll also find out what their strengths and weaknesses are during an arrest. Mm. There are people that they know exactly when they're going to start to fade. It's that one-minute mark or two-minute mark. Okay, I'm starting to lean. I, historically, I lean on the chest at two minutes. Somebody better relieve me. Or I just don't have, maybe my hands are too big for the bag. I better just use two fingers. This is my method for using BVM. Yeah, Some sure. people may need to use their full hand because they've got small hands, but it helps you develop that muscle memory. Um, but I hope that that answered your question. Chest compression fraction is the one that we um, we, we tell that as the, the king of the metrics. And it's an interesting it's an interesting equation because it's the it's your it's your hands on the it's your it's your chest compression time in relation to the total arrest time. And I I think it's it's interesting how the American Heart Association um, uh, put that measurement forward versus something else. So the minute you know you've got an arrest, the clock starts ticking. You need to have your hands on the chest. The queen of the metrics, we say, is, is uh, recoil mm. because that's where most people, you know, they start to get tired, and that's where most people start to... And that's exactly that, what I wanted to start uh, asking you guys about as well. As a medical educator and medical director, recoil is a difficult concept to teach and also uh, to have the self-awareness to both, one, understand that you may be becoming fatigued during your chest compressions that you're giving, and then understanding what recoil is, number two, and then ultimately understanding the adverse effect it has on the intrathoracic pressure regulation and, uh, you know, preload. Those are difficult concepts to teach. And that's why the team concept is so important, because... It shouldn't be just your your awareness. Mm-hmm. It should be the situational awareness of the team. Okay. It should be okay. Andrew's tired. Whoever's uh, whoever's got the ability to focus, whether it's the person operating the AED or now you've got a team leader, you've got the luxury of having enough people to have somebody acting as coach. Andrew's getting tired. The next time um, we analyze or the next time we bag, somebody takes Andrew's place. So it's got to be a team situational awareness, not just an individual's, right? And, that, and that's where good followership comes in, right? These simple concepts of, you know, leadership is great, but again, good followership, understanding your abilities, understanding your limitations, and receiving that feedback that and that direction from a good leader to say, okay, we're at two minutes. I know you don't feel fatigued, but science shows us that a high percentage will be fatigued and it will therefore compromise our mission today and it's time to, to, to swap out even when you sure. think you're still capable of doing something, right? It's that good followership more that allows people to... More so, you need to take a break because I need you on chest compressions in another exactly. you know, two or three cycles. Yeah, absolutely. It brings up some a very good point because what we see 
at the beginning of, of the class, everybody wants to be the hero, and the hero spot is the compressor. The person operating the AD is just kind of hanging out for two minutes, right, watching everybody else work. The, everybody wants to be the hero and be that compressor. Not everybody should play that role. The hero is the team. It's not the individual. Um, it's also very tough for people who now have a card in their wallet that says, I'm CPR certified, to say to the group, I know I have a card, but I have to disqualify myself for this role today. Or at two minutes, I better, somebody needs to relieve me. Mm -hmm. That's tough for people to do in, in our environment, in, in the healthcare environment, I think. Interesting. Um, why do you think that is? I think the card, um, and, I'm, and I'm quoting um, uh, somebody else who's very active in this field, card never saved a life, right? Um, but I think the card holds us to a standard that we sometimes don't fully understand. It, it's, it's akin to driving a car. Just because you have, you can drive a car doesn't mean you're necessarily ready to go out into um, immediately into a four-lane traffic in LA, let's let's <laughs> say um, during rush hour. Um, so the car gives us perhaps, and this is my speculation, but from what what we've seen at at on here is comment, but I think that the car gives us a certain level of empowerment that is artificial. It means we pass the test. It means we pass the threshold. But it doesn't mean that we should stop thinking about where our strengths and weaknesses lie. It's that difference between compliance and competency, right? Mm -hmm. We're complied. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't stop learning, that I shouldn't start uh, stop self-reflecting, and, and also shouldn't realize my, uh, my strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I, I would agree, right? So we tend to think... Um, a lot of times that our certification is a mastery level mm. certification, and it really isn't, right? So when you get your CPR card, uh, people are doing very well, and you know, and, and I, you know, I admire people that want to obtain any certification. But how many of us continue on to say this was only the start, not the finish line, right? So a lot of people perceive I've got my card, and whatever it is, it doesn't—it's not just CPR, but anything—that's the finish line. And it really isn't. A great instructor of mine, you know, in paramedic school way back in the day, and he says, you know, Ed, you've got a decision you make. If you went, if you had a paramedic come to your family member, because we were talking about what the minimum pass was in the class, and he says, you shouldn't even be thinking like that, because when someone comes to your loved one, do you want a 70% medic, or do you want the 100% medic? Who strive for 100% or who strive to pass? And I think a lot of times we think that way, that this is the finish line and we don't go back and we don't have the opportunity to practice. It's not always an individual problem. Sometimes it's a systemic problem. So mm -hmm. uh, we all know in, in education that there is hundreds of learning hours that we would like to do, but then we only have access and contact with those students for, for, for a portion of that. So things get pushed aside. We have to prioritize. We have to triage. And I think what happens is, is that we we tend to think of certifications and mastery level, and we never revisit our skill set. I also think it is, it is really reflective of the personalities that go into healthcare, and especially EMS and emergency services, that 
we're driven to help. We are driven to be there. We work in an environment where quite often we are alone, mm. right, or just with a partner. I worked in an environment where I was a PRU medic, so I was there by myself very often. So often I had no choice but to do things by myself, and it wasn't ideal. So being used to working in less than ideal circumstances, having to function so independently and autonomous, that quite often it just reflects into how we interact once the team arrives, that we forget that we have support, that we forget that we are now part of a greater collective and that we need to be a good follower now and take direction from a new leader. So I think there's many behavioral and psychological things that feed into it, but I think those are the two major ones. Gotcha. So the course starts out by challenging the preconceived notions and conceptions Hey, I'm a high performer, CPR, I have my card, I'm ready to go, I want to be the hero. And on the flip side also, you may have folks who are like, you know what, I feel like I need more training in this, it's been a while since I've responded to an arrest, let's see how I do, and they may end up performing better than they had expected. So in a non-judgmental, anonymous way, we're informing them and sort of triggering the initial aha moment of the day and priming folks to now say, all right, I'm open to learning. There's clearly value in this course. How do you transition the first part of the day and challenging uh, one's ego, et cetera, to then uh, move on to the team dynamics and uh, some of the team development? So I think you're dead on. It's, it's a safe learning environment. So by establishing a safe learning environment and making it fun and interactive, um, and having that aha moment, they instantly want to learn more. They instantly want to experience more. Because most people aren't in there to really learn. They're there to experience. And we provide them with that. We provide them with a safe place to have that experience. Hey, friends. I'm going to take a brief moment to pause the show and bring you a word from our sponsors. No, not the sponsors you may traditionally think of, but rather sponsors that are aimed to help eliminate healthcare disparities. This is a very special project I'd like to announce during EMS week for folks to trial. It comes at absolutely no cost and is ultimately designed to optimize your training experience and help translate into improved outcomes within your community in relation to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Recently, a group of colleagues of mine and I had the pleasure of coming together and reviewing the science and literature on feedback in CPR, and the data pretty much speaks for itself. Dr. Bobro, the state EMS medical director of Arizona, has done tremendous work on this, and we now know that all the major defibrillator companies come with some sort of active CPR feedback. Nevertheless, we are acutely aware that once you know a single EMS system, you know a single EMS system, and budgetary constraints are real-world problems and challenges. Not everyone can afford the defibrillator component to their device. So what have we done is designed a watch app for the Apple Watch called Perfect CPR. Now, we should be very important to state this is designed for training purposes only, but nevertheless, once a provider opens up the app using the accelerometer and gyrometer built into the Apple Watch, you will be able to get direct feedback on your rate, depth of compression, as well as recoil. So please 
Check this app out. It is available at $0.00 in the Apple Watch iTunes Store, and it's called Perfect CPR. Please also find us and follow us on Twitter at Perfect CPR. Again, we're beta testing for this. Very excited to launch during EMS week at a cost of $0.00 and would love your feedback. We can all do a part to help improve the health disparities within our country, and feedback is definitely a requisite component to that. Check us out. We mix it with a lot of emotion. There's some great opportunity to understand the why we need to improve, right? So we share experiences through videos and survival stories that really drive home, that tug at the heart, the, the nerve center of all the people that we know are you know, emergency responders, right? Because we're all out there because we're caring and compassionate. So we give them the why. So the next is why that you need to do better. You know, the realization that, you know, you're not performing at the level you think you are, good or bad. Then we give them the why. They're driven to want to improve, especially in a safe and friendly environment. That competitiveness comes out. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of driving factors, but ultimately they're really inspired by a lot of the content that we provide them. And ironically, it's content that they know. We aren't providing them with things they don't already know. So everybody has an awesome survival story that they know of, that they are intrigued and in touch. But I think a lot of times we forget about those. And that's really what we're counting on is that inspiration, those experiences that they, that maybe brought them into this business or keeps them going every day. And we're showing them why it applies to this particular topic. Mm. And we do this, we pace this out throughout the day. We also give them um, elements of the physiology that's important at that moment. So um, we help them understand the physiology, the basics, just basics behind perfusion pressure and what that means and why 30 compressions are important, what's going on during the first 20. You know, you're just priming the pump and you're getting some circulation in that next, that next 10 compressions. Um, later on, when we introduce, um, we introduce an AED into the equation and now we're, we're, um, we're working with a leader, and it's very interesting because one of the first challenges the leader has to do is he has to actually override the directions from the AED. Mm. We talk about um, uh, hands-off time. We usually startle people with this statistic because it's one of my it's one of my favorites that every five-second decrease in um, hands-off time will actually double your success rate in um, defibrillation. Mm -hmm. So we've got now we've got a leader saying. Ignore what the AED is telling you. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep compressing here because we, we, we're going to go to the very last minute. And it's interesting to see how people will look at the leader and look at each other and wonder, all right, what should we do? They're kind of uncomfortable with that. But um, we give them statistics, you know, some statistics that come out of the Resuscitation Academy in Seattle, Washington, which really startle people, statistics about survival in different areas of the country and so forth. Um, so, yeah, they get a little bit of that throughout the whole process, and for many people, it's a humbling process, but I, uh, it's important for you to know that 
it, it is really a team building process. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's necessary to build those high te- high performance teams. It's an emotional experience that is supported by science. So it's the best of both worlds. We're introducing and supporting it with science, but we're allowing their emotions, their heart, their compassion to be the driving force. Mm-hmm. Speaking of compassion, uh, there's a story that you share with an associated video. Andrew, would you mind uh, telling us about uh, Kylie Shea? Sure. It's the Kylie Shea story, and um, it came out of an ad that the American Heart Association ran, and it's, it's very impactful. We use this video. It's one of the videos we use. Um, it's a video we use early on after people have done their CPR, and we've collected scores. Um, we have people build a composite of the typical cardiac arrest victim. Now, this is after everybody said, I can do CPR in my sleep. And um, the composite uh, ends up being typically uh, somebody that's on in their years, um, sedentary, um, smoke lucky strikes <laughs> their whole life, you know. <laughs> and, and, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, it's a tough moment. I'm glad Ed said it. And, and uh, uh, it is some of the stuff we do is kind of tugs at your emotions. We look at people straight in the eye and say, how do you feel about investing your time and putting yourself at risk, which, you know, in EMS, so many people do, putting yourself at risk to um, save this particular patient? How do you feel about it? Let's all be honest. And, you know, you get some people kind of like lowering their heads and everything. Well, let us show you a film because some people will admit, you know what, you're right. This is how I view the typical cardiac arrest victim, and it's not right. Um, and and it's not right that we have some preconceived notions about that person's quality of life and, you know, so forth. It's just wrong. So we show this uh, video, the Kylie Shea video, and it's a video of a beautiful young girl who's, who's taking us on a tour through her elementary school. She's eight years old. And as she um, goes through, and if, if I had had a daughter, she would have been my daughter. I, I, she's just an adorable girl. She shows us her math class. This is where I go to math. Um, then she shows us um, her her gymnasium. This is where I practice dance. Then she shows us her, her um, lunchroom. This is where I eat lunch. She shows her locker and a little picture of her boyfriend appears. She covers it. So it's like, yeah, you don't want to see this. Um, and uh, then she says, uh, she's in the hallway and she said, and she says, and this is where I died. Mm-hmm. There is silence. People are smiling the whole time. They're so engaged watching this little girl give her tour of the, the school. And she says, this is where I died. Um, she had a sudden cardiac arrest. I actually got a chance to see her speak at um, the uh, survivor dinner at um, the uh, um, ECCU survivor dinner. Um, remarkable young girl. Her cardiac arrest was caught on camera on the school security cameras, mm. and um, everybody performed like clockwork. The chain of survival was engaged immediately. You had first responder CPR. The, the system was activated immediately. Um, EMT showed up. Paramedics took over, but there was it, there was perfect clockwork to how this worked. Well, today she's 
alive and well. Um, and uh, at the very end of the, it's hard not to get choked up as as we talk about it. At the end of the video, she says, "This is where I say thank you." Mm-hmm. And there is again dead silence, and um, usually a lot of tears in the room. Frankly. Now we ask the question, the tough question, who is prepared to save Kylie Shea? Silence. That's when we read the scores. That's when people get in the game. The rest of the day is no problem. Um, There is another video we show at the very end. I can talk about that a little later, but that's when people get in the game. So... This is one of the ways we tug at people's heartstrings, and you, you won't find anybody um, backing off at that point. People really want to continue to improve, and they roll with the punches. Um, and they do. Yeah. And they do. They really do rise to occasion. That is one of the things that is so delightful for us is to see the positive momentum that is gained and um, see the outcome because it becomes – because you, you have to understand is that they come into this experience with a level of performance that is not ideal. Mm. And throughout the course of the day, we give them more complicated, uh, difficult situations to deal with, but their performance improves. So the situation is getting worse, but their performance is improving. So it's it's really, really impressive to see after they get that uh, initial aha moment of maybe I'm not where I should be, and here is a good reason to improve and to see them where they end up. It, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it, when you see the, the dramatic difference between the score on their own and the performance at the end of the day, it, it in itself is very inspiring as well. One of the things we do, so we walk them step by step. So they now they get a chance after they've heard their scores, they've seen Kyle, the Kylie Shea story, um, they have a chance to improve their performance and also now understand their performance. Then we throw them into, after they've done that and after they're they're now confident that they're doing better. Um, we throw them into a three-person code, and they're now all looking at us like, "Hold on here, we we've just been doing this as individuals. What do you mean you're throwing us into to now a, a cardiac arrest situation?" And we say to them, "We got a card in your wallet, man. Right? <laughs> card says you can do it. Right? Now they're starting to get it. Now they're starting to understand. Yep." My car just got me through the door, and and they know it's going to be a little painful, and it usually is kind of painful. It's a crash and burn usually. Mm. But after that, we say, all right, let's take it apart. Let's see what we can improve, and, and we go through their concept of what could be improved. Then we introduce more formal concepts. We, we introduce the CPR triangle. Um, we show them the proper locations, compressor should always have the patient's head to their left when they start out and so forth, um, so you can get the AD pads on easier, the other person playing the AD pads. Um, and we give them some structure. They run a 
code again, and now they're kind of happy. But you see now the, the need for leadership. Some people start saying, hey, we need a leader, because now these people are getting good. They're getting so good that they're kind of colliding with each other because they all have strong opinions. Meanwhile, we're, we're like drill sergeants. We're like, chest compression fraction, chest compression fraction. You're leaning. We're, we're pretty tough. So they, they're getting the metrics. Mm-hmm. We ask them to repeat them out loud. Um, if they leave without knowing the, the, um, the, at least the king and the queen of the metrics, the, the chest compression fraction leaning, they're, they, um, they didn't attend the course. Um, and it's very interesting. We ask everybody to choose a leader. These are groups of, by the way, um, typically four to six people. That's typically the range we train per mannequin. And folks so, have not really worked together before. This is a heterogeneous we, group. Yes. Thank you for saying that. We make people count off as we form teams. There's no, you get to work with the person you work with every day. You're Which is likely a real-world uh, example because, uh, you know, you have a 911 priority dispatch for cardiac arrest. You're going to get some volunteers that show up. You'll have a BLS ambulance. You'll have a private ALS ambulance. You'll have municipal fire show up. And it's there's a high likelihood that the providers that arrive have never worked together uh, in regular patient care, let alone uh, resuscitation of a critically ill patient. Sure, exactly. And that's why we go through this next exercise, which is we ask everybody to choose a leader. Every team has to choose a leader. And they're all smiling and happy that uh, they're exactly that. So, so you're motioning to me. Um, people can't see that. What we do is once they've chosen a leader, we say, all right, leader for group one, go to group two. Leader for group two, go to group three. And people are devastated. But we say, that's the real world, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what's going to be. And you can see the teams are forming because they're, they're, they're not happy with that. Am I right? Absolutely. And it really illustrates the importance of good followership as a new leader comes in. So why don't you talk about uh, what we do to um, have people now, once they've chosen a leader, um, now they go through the exercise of, do you know your equipment? Mm. Absolutely. So, again, to add challenges. So as I said earlier, as, as the day progresses, the challenges become greater. Um, because if we just allow them to, to practice the same situation, um, then, of course, they're going to improve, right? And, 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 again, all these principles really apply to all level of care, right? So it's about simulating and using deliberate practice to, to improve any particular skill. But because this is really about resuscitation, uh, and, again, we wanted everyone to be able to participate irrespective of their level of care, we provide them with AEDs and BBMs and some physical challenges as well. So as the day progresses and as the exercise progresses, and again, we, we switch from exercise to information to back to exercise. So we either provide them with an inspirational um, review of the Kati Shea story, or we provide them with uh, some science to support the next exercise as we move forward. Each exercise challenges them in different ways. So it may be the equipment doesn't necessarily fit, uh, work appropriately. It fails or... Um, we provide them with working equipment, and then we switch it out. So all of a sudden, now they have a BBM that won't have, hold air, so now they can't ventilate the person. So 
how do they react? How do they work together as a team to overcome that? They have a defib that isn't programmed appropriately. So it's telling them to do one thing while they really know they should be doing something else. Do they follow the machine or do they follow the leader? Uh, we, we, we introduce some environmental issues as well. So it's, it's hard to duplicate environmental issues. Uh, but we did it on a very basic level. So we used uh, safety glasses, and Andrew came up with the idea. We just we scuffed them up with sandpaper. So you can see through them, but not not effectively. We give them earplugs so they can't hear effectively. We, envir- we, we really try to replicate some of the environmental circumstances, right? And initially, we have some issues. Every now and then, we'll have a little rebuttal of, well, this isn't realistic. And I say, well, you've never really intubated anybody then with full protective equipment, right? As a clinician practicing during SARS, I can tell you that about three seconds after you put all your PPE on, you can't see anything as you're trying to visualize the cords, right? You're bent over, everything is, is steaming up, so the safety glasses were inspired by those kind of environmental issues, you know, and even the earplugs. How many times you've been during an arrest or during any sort of patient care where the jaws of life are humming away or a big diesel engine and you can't hear your partner who is five feet away from you or, you know, even in the even in the uh, resuscitation room after you've rolled into the emergency department, you're trying to give a report and everybody's yelling orders. It, it's, you know, you don't have the perfect environment. We never practice, EMS especially, right? Mm-hmm. Quite often it's inhospitable and dangerous, never mind uh, comfortable and convenient. So we, we, we also introduce those environmental stumbling blocks as well. So it's equipment failure, it's environmental issues, and the expectation of performance continues to grow. And without exception, in every workshop, their performance continues to improve at the same time as we see good examples of good leadership and good followership. One of the concepts we introduce at this point, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, for example, the BBMs, because it's a very simple exercise, is improvise, adapt, overcome. We become... Um, focused on what we are used to using, for example, in our equipment, and we get focused on our environment. Um, So what happens when the BBM doesn't work? And also, is the team being situationally aware when suddenly the BBM um, doesn't work? Do you pull out a pocket mask? Do you do mouth-to-mouth? Do you find some other means? Do you just do compression only, for example, in that that case? So... um, it's it's a, what we do is we just take what we do is we take a, a box cutter and we cut a small slit in the BBM that nobody can see. Mm. But when they start using it, it feels normal, but there's no chest rise. Well, is anybody looking for chest rise? Um, the great one is when we put soda cans in the um, uh, AED bag and the soda cans come out. That kind of flips instead people. of an AED. Instead of an AED, it's like. But you've got to live for, live for the chest compression fraction. Don't be focused on the Coke cans that just fell out of your, your AD and volunteer ambulance. You know, that must have been the Christmas party or something. But, um, yeah, you've got to just get on that chest. But you'll see, as people keep getting coached and reminded, you've got to live for those metrics. Nothing stops them. And then when they're in that final exercise, we've done exercises. Um, oh, they had to do an exercise uh, in the dark once, uh, simulating a um, an electrocution. Mm-hmm. Power was out, so guess what? You're doing CPR in the dark. All mm-hmm. you've got are your little 
we gave everybody pen lights and just wanted to see would they figure out what to do with the pen lights. Mm. Um, and we've done other um, very crazy environments, but can you acclimate? Mm-hmm. And, and our hope with the, the, for example, the safety glasses, their very last exercise is always in an environment that is going to throw them a curve. Because 95% of what you're learning the whole time is really what's surrounding you. There's just so many elements surrounding you all the time during your training. Um, can you roll with those environments? We don't let them talk. The last code is, is silent. Hmm. They have to use nonverbal cues to be able to work as a team. And they're wearing goggles and had earplugs in. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that to me. Um, there are certain elite EMS teams that train that way. And uh, Sydney Hems is the example that comes to mind. They have really developed this concept of stress inoculation training. And uh, for those folks that go through their boot camp, which I believe is uh, about a week long, I have some colleagues who have done that, uh, and the photos on Twitter are really remarkable, but throwing all sorts of challenges uh, to the provider that are unexpected and highly uncomfortable, whether that be noise or taking away one or two of your cardinal senses and just training in that environment. How many of us can honestly say we've... uh, done a drill with a cardiac arrest in the dark or with extreme noise preventing us from uh, hearing one another. I don't think that's commonly practiced. And EMS, as you guys are saying, expect the unexpected. And how how often do our senses are overwhelmed? And, I mean, we know that when you're stressed, you don't hear as well. Mm -hmm. We know when we're stressed, we get tunnel vision. We know all our senses are compromised in a stressful environment irrespective of really if that environment has loud noises or bright lights or anything as well. So so we already go knowing that just the stress of the actual situation itself could limit our senses. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, why would we train to that? So then along those lines, um, how do you guys view simulation in general? in regards to uh, its nature and scope in pre-hospital training and education? And also, what are the limitations to simulation in pre-hospital training and education? I think it's vital. Um, And I also think EMS has been doing it for a long time. I think one of the first things we need to realize is that EMS has been one of the first health disciplines to embrace simulation. Maybe not voluntarily, maybe not consciously, uh, but I think EMS has always been doing it. It may be with what we call a standardized patient today. Years ago, we just call it a fellow volunteer or a classmate, and you practiced and you you did that. I think basic principles of simulation have evolved, and we recognize the value in the psychomotor skills deliberate practice, as well as the value of debriefing and reviewing performance. And I think, once again, EMS has been doing that for years. How many people debrief on the way back from a call, from the, you know, from the hospital back to the base? You're talking to your partner quite often about how that call went and, and things like that. So I think, you know, we've uh, been doing simulation um, quite a bit in EMS, and I think we just need to be more conscious that it is happening 
and be a little bit more prescriptive when and how uh, we use it. But I think there's no limits. I think we need to use simulation for a lot more things. So typically we think simulation is a great opportunity to improve our clinical skills. I think we need to realize that simulation and deliberate practice allows us to improve a lot of things that ultimately will improve the patient outcome. And it's not always about truly just clinical skills. Sometimes it's about testing processes and systems and other things as well. So ensuring that the whole system is up to up to spec and ready to go, right? So uh, understanding that our senses are compromised during a stressful environment is you know, is, is key. And when you simulate simple things like repetitive motion or repetitive tasks that lead you to where that particular tool is you need to do your job that you don't have to think about it. All those things that I think is currently happening in EMS, we just need to do that as well. Um, adding other influences like new team members and different equipment, all of a sudden you show up and you're at, say, an MCI. An MCI doesn't have to be hundreds of patients, but just all of a sudden the fire department brings you a piece of equipment that you're not familiar with, i.e. a bag that you don't know where things are. How do you overcome that stress? How do you know? All of those things. So whether it's testing processes, whether it's testing and preparing us for clinical practice, I think simulation doesn't have limits. I think it really needs to be part of our everyday practice. I think where we need to improve is the frequency to which we do it mm. and to the areas of our profession to which we apply it. Sure, and I know the um, the large national bodies are in concurrence. Uh, the National Registry certainly is moving towards incorporating simulation as part of the uh, core competencies, and we know even in uh, paramedic education programs, uh, using simulation to really explore those high acuity, low occurrence cases, the halo cases, can be quite instrumental. Absolutely. So we, we quite frequently talk about the high acuity, uh, low frequency type of event, and that's absolutely a perfect um, opportunity for simulation. But it's also a great opportunity to make other experiences. So we don't suggest for a minute that simulation is going to ever replace clinical practice. What we do suggest, though, is that simulation, even in the most mundane skill sets, will help improve that clinical experience. And we've all experienced that, right? We learn a new skill set and we sent off to a clinical rotation and the fear factor, the uncomfortable uh, realization that the first time I'm ever going to do this is on a real person really makes that experience less productive, right? So through simulation, if you have a little bit more experience, you're not wasting that time with gaining that comfort of knowing how to communicate, knowing how to work with the team. It really facilitates an opportunity for that clinical experience to be as optimal and as positive as possible because you've simulated it so many times before. Your core competency, your psychomotor skills were developed on a, uh, through a simulator, a task trainer where, you know, there wasn't that fear. That's uh, interesting that you mentioned that. This uh, happened to me recently. Uh, we had a 32-year-old patient present in cardiac arrest and had a history of tracheal stenosis. So brought in by the pre-hospital folks, uh, excellent uh, ACLS, excellent ALS care, and um, remained in asystole throughout. 
And partly because the patient was 32, I think there was an overwhelming sense by the team to continue. We started high-performance CPR. We had a team leader. There was effective communication rotation. And despite a 20 to 25-minute pre-hospital downtime, we got the patient into V-fib shocked, V-fib shocked. In a refractory V-fib scenario, um, we pulled out a second defibrillator, double-sequenced V-fib, and got the patient back into uh, sinus tachycardia perfusing rhythm. Fantastic. Now we're proceeding finally to our airway and attempting to intubate the patient. In the meantime, we had found the ID, and one of the team members was looking up the, uh, the patient records. And my colleague was intubating and could had great visualization of the cords, but could not pass the tube. Lo and behold, the patient had tracheal stenosis. And in the hospital, we had just gotten new surgical crite kits. And different than the way I had been trained as a resident, this was the Seltzinger technique advancing the wire, and I had never used the kit before. And I had taken it with me to the anatomy lab, the cadaver lab, uh, just the week prior to run through the, you know, psychomotor skills, run through the heuristics, because in that situation you do not want to be questioning your equipment when a life is in the hands. So thankfully the procedure went quite smoothly. But it's that practice and that just priming your mental. Absolutely. It's deliberate practice. Absolutely. So we make the point uh, during the course um, that we the, the common factor we all face is we're all on the learning curve. Mm. And uh, there's really two choices. Learn on a real patient or um, learn during some form of simulation. And when we're learning on a real patient, if we don't have our skills down, that patient's being put at risk. Um, finally, um, the, the um, resuscitation community feels comfortable enough because there's enough data to be able to say that uh, poor quality CPR is a preventable harm. We're able to now be able to say that to the public. And um, repeat that for me. I think that's really important. Poor quality CPR is a preventable harm. Preventable harm. Yeah, I agree. It is now falls in the realm of patient safety. So on that learning curve that we're all on, um, it behooves us to simulate uh, to the best of our ability so that when we do face the, the actual event, um, we're prepared to the best of our ability. And I think the science is really bearing this out. Um, we know through the Rock Consortium now several randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials, etc., looking at various aspects of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And again, the disparity in CPR quality across the country is staggering. Um, and we know this because um, testing various devices, like for example, the impedance threshold device, the ITD device, um, showed no benefit in patient outcomes. And that was quite surprising uh, to folks who understand the physiology of thoracic pressure regulation and was confusing. And the post hoc analysis, which luckily they were able to go back, the uh, feedback on actual defibrillators has advanced quite a bit over the past five years or so. So all three monitor companies provide uh, direct CPR feedback if you do have that component. 
they were able to look at those patients that received high-quality CPR, and those patients had improvement in outcomes, whereas those who did not and had the use of the ITD had worsening outcomes. So quite an interesting paradigm where we're saying to ourselves, you know, is it fair if you have a cardiac arrest in Seattle or, you know, not to call anybody out, but somewhere else? Sure, right? Absolutely, that's a preventable harm. We should all be aspiring to train to the same quality. And the same attitude. It's it's really interesting. Uh, Ed mentioned earlier that uh, we appeal as much to people's minds as we appeal to their emotions. Hmm. And um, Seattle has, has um, the mantra that um, everyone in and VFib will survive. That's just their mindset. Mm. Um, and we share some of the statistics from across the country. Seattle right now is is at about, I, I believe, it's approximately 60%. They may have crossed the threshold into 62. For witness of VFib. Witness of VFib. With high standard CPR. And um, so their success rate now is 62% of those people walk out the door. They're not just that they're they're not in a wheelchair. They're not having to mm-hmm. um, re- relearn so many of their motor functions and so forth. They're walking out the door. Um, other areas of the country, um, yes, not to call people out, but um, there there are areas of the country where the survival rate is is actually zero, four percent, three percent, and so forth. Um, so much of that has to do with attitude. Um, at the very end of the course, we show a video of um, a gentleman who um, had a uh, cardiac arrest in uh, North Carolina and was treated by the Duke um, uh, Duke Hospital System. He he was ushered through the chain of survival beautifully. Um, but this is how we tie everything together and say you've got to have the right attitude. Everything we've taught you today has to come together um, with the right attitude being the engine. Um, doctors and uh, EMS perform CPR on him for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. and he survived intact, mentally intact, um, and uh, was able to uh, walk out the door Um he did have to go through the cath lab, but um, so was hospitalized for a brief bit. But um, he, there's a beautiful part at the very end where he says thank you, you know, another thank you, mm-hmm. another survivor saying thank you. And, uh, again, silence in the room after that. It's a tough video to watch. It's a very tough video to watch, but that's the, the final note that we leave people on. Um, and... Um, Again, people don't want to leave. They, they want to just challenge another code and see what else they can do. It's, it's really a nice moment. Sure. And we've had some great success stories, too. Some nice follow-up. So at the end of the day, people are very excited, albeit exhausted. Mm-hmm. You push them out of their comfort zone. And we know that discomfort is the optimal environment for learning. Um, what do they do from there? How do they move forward? What is the long-term prognosis for themselves and their agency? Our hope is that they bring um, everything they learned 
back to their organizations. Uh, we make the presentation materials available to them um, gratis. If, if our mission is to help save lives, that's Laredo's um, um, soul. And so if, um, if they go out and save a life as a result of this, um, we're content. We're very happy. We're very honored to have been a part of that. Um, if they decide that they want to come back to us and, and ask us to come in to do training, if they want to invest in um, quality CPR equipment so that they can conduct the same kind of training that they just experienced, um, we're absolutely delighted naturally. Um, but at the core of this, our mission and our, our intent with this workshop is to um, help save lives. We got a beautiful um, note, and I'm sure you've got some comments, but after one of the classes we gave, one of the workshops we gave up in um, Massachusetts, uh, we received a note from a nurse who said, uh, she wrote to us and said, I went back to my hospital, I witnessed a cardiac arrest right in the hallway of, of the floor I'm responsible for. She immediately called together a team, told them exactly what to do, coached them through the process, and saved the patient. It doesn't get any better than that, frankly. Um, when, when you know that you've somehow been a part of, of um, that kind of an experience in a patient's life, in the nurse's life, in the lives of, of, of those other people who are involved, it just doesn't get any better than that. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, a great success story on that, on that level. And that's really what we're striving to do is to get people to reignite that passion, likely the passion that drove them into the industry that they're in already. We just want to hope that they go back with that enthusiasm and passion. We hope that it's contagious, right? Because we see it spread like wildfire throughout the day that we hope they take the messages and the the knowledge back and even in the smallest form and, and have an effect in all parts of their organization and their business really is, is, is they take that passion and the desire to measure, to improve, and to really impact in a way that we all know that they can. And that's where our success stories are, are, are so delightful is, is that we had that experience where people have gone back and we they've used it as the starting of something even better mm -hmm. and they've they've taken that passion and that enthusiasm and it has been contagious in their organization and it's led to the implementation of different processes and different changes in the way they do business and uh, that is really ultimately what we want it to do we want it to be contagious sounds good I'm sure folks are very excited by all this. Where can they learn more about the resuscitation workshop? Uh, there's a couple of um, a couple of uh, different avenues. Uh, if they are working with someone from Lairdal, they can contact their local Lairdal rep um, or our inside sales uh, department if they work with somebody in, in our inside sales group. Uh, they can also go online if they go to Lairdall.com and then um, 
search under SUN, our simulation users network, S-U-N. Um, they'll find a copy if they follow the page uh, down to resources. They'll fi- fi- actually find a copy of uh, the presentation slides we use. Mm. Um, best way, though, is to reach out to uh, your local Laerdal rep or somebody in inside sales. They'll, they'll have information about when the next workshop is. They'll be able to trace that down. For sure, them. sure. All right, gents, I really want to sincerely thank you for your time. That was a great conversation. Uh, are there any asks or requests that you have of the EMS Nation audience? That they do view poor quality CPR as a preventable harm. Um, we're at the point where we know that high quality CPR is the key determinant influencing whether somebody, um, all, phys- all other issues aside, any morbidities and so forth aside, um, is the determinant of whether someone survives and survives intact mm. um, from um, certainly a BFib um, uh, sudden cardiac arrest. So um, it's understanding that. It's getting in the game. It's maintaining the attitude that nobody, especially with BFib, um, is going to perish mm. from a sudden cardiac arrest. That would be my request. My request would just keep striving for that mastery level. I think that's what we all get in the business to do. And somewhere along the way, uh, for some of us, that slips. I think it's... Uh, to embrace the passion and to strive for that master level at whatever level you're at, whatever level your clinical practice is, you can impact significant change. I have an EMS background, but I've also been on the other side. I've been from paramedic to patient, I've, uh, and uh, I know the impact that uh, EMS has on everybody's lives every day. And uh, just to always strive to be the best that you can be. And sometimes that's being a good follower as much as it is being a good leader. Well said. Andrew Kristofik, thank you, sir. Ed Colclough, thank you, sir. This is Faison Arshad, wishing everyone a safe tour. Thank you so much, EMS Nation, for tuning in to the second installment of our EMS Week podcast series. We would love to have some of your feedback. How do you all design high-performance teams? Do you use simulation within your service? And how often do you train high-acuity, low-occurrence cases like cardiac arrest? Do you all come from systems where there's a mix of volunteers, first responders or firefighters, EMTs, and ALS? And how often are you guys, or rather I should say, you know, I'm sure there's a wide variety of transport times and a nuanced approach to the way that is accomplished. We'd love to hear more of your feedback on the EMS Nation podcast. Please find us on Twitter at EMS underscore nation and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. EMS Nation, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and thank you so much for dedicating yourself on a daily basis to go out there and provide incredibly high-quality pre-hospital care and to committing to be on a path of both personal improvement as well as systems-based performance enhancement.
Now, we'd like to remind you we could really use your support. If you happen to have an Apple Watch, we'd love it for you to download the perfect CPR app and use it during training and let us know what feedback you have. At present, it's designed to give audio as well as haptic feedback during training cardiac arrest scenarios. And our hope is this can help improve outcomes both in the community and on a systems-wide basis to help decrease the disparity in outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Please tune in for the next episode of EMS Nation during EMS Week. This is Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour. 